Hi everyone, my name is Christiana Best and I'm an assistant professor at the University of St. Joseph. This is Inside Out, Outside In, a podcast developed for and by colleges and universities. The podcast is framed around the themes of diversity, inclusion, and equity. Our goal is to educate, inform, and build community as well as inspire change. Today's discussion is with two colleagues, Dr. Elba Carabayo and Dr. Nancy Billis. They're here to continue our conversation on hate crimes and racial incidents on college campuses. It is important to note that the views, information, and beliefs expressed during this podcast are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent any college, university, or the Hartford Consortium of Higher Education. I want to thank you, Nancy Billis and Elba Carabayo, for coming and participating in this episode of our podcast, Inside Out, Outside In. I really respect you both, and I'm glad that you felt compelled to be here and to share some of your thoughts about issues related to hate crimes, racial incidents, religious bias, sexual orientation bias, and those type of things that are happening on college campuses. I think it's time for us to talk about it and look at the problem and try to come up with some solutions. So to get started, I'm just going to ask you if you can tell me a little bit about yourself, specifically your professional background. So I'm a professor of philosophy at the University of St. Joseph. I've been there for 17 years. And prior to being a philosopher, I was a social worker and a therapist. Mm. I specialized in my psychotherapy in working with deaf people, so I used sign language in my work. But prior to that, I was a social worker, and I specialized in working with refugees. So I had quite an interesting experience of working with newly arrived refugees and seeing the blocks that they faced, from microaggressions to outright racism. Mm -hmm. Um, I have two specialties. One is ethics, and one is mindfulness and meditation. So I focus a lot in my work on helping students to become more aware of themselves, how they present themselves in the world, and how they move through the world. Great. Thank you for that. Dr. Carabayo, would you like to share some background information? Sure. I'm a social worker. I have a master's in social work, and I have a doctorate in social policy. I have been with the University of St. Joseph for five years. Before coming to the University of St. Joseph, I was the director of human services for the largest county in Florida, which is Polk County, which is central Florida. And before that, I was tenured at the University of Massachusetts in human services. Um, that's who I am. I'm a Latina, born in New York, and so I'm, I'm a New Yorican. <laughs> Great. Can you tell us a little bit about what you do now at USJ? At the University of St. Joseph, I'm the director of field education and an assistant professor in the School of Social Work and Equitable Community Practice. I work um, thus far exclusively in the a master's program, so I place and supervise about 120 students. Okay, great. Thank you. So you're both in the classroom and you're interacting in the field placements the as well, mm-hmm. and the agency is great. So... Um, I shared with you some of what the students we interviewed earlier this week talked about 
in terms of their concerns as it relates to racial and other forms of hate crimes. And I kind of wanted to get your reaction and response to some of them. I would start with the issue of microaggression in the classroom or in campus in general, whether it's advising, whether it's field instruction, or just something in the classroom. Have you experienced that yourselves? Have you experienced it with your students? And if so, how do you intervene? I try very hard to know my students, and I try to err on the side of being protective. However, if I, if I know the student to be somewhat resilient, I might call them out on it in some particularly tactful manner. I have a fairly benign example because the, the target of the microaggression is me, but I've had, this has happened more than once, but I have had students who are interested in gerontology and working with frail elders talk about extensively how elders are frail and they often get confused and they sort of do this whole litany of description a pro- accurate description of frail elders in, in sort of in, in their advanced stages. I have a bit of a background in gerontology while I was at UMass, and usually those are the what I call the oldest old, usually people who are 82, 84, and older. And so they'll be talking and they'll say, blah, 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 blah. You know, when people pass 65, and I always I wait till they finish, and I'm like, okay, time out. And I just turned 65, but I would say, time out, I am blah, blah, blah. And I certainly hope I don't fall off that cliff in two months when I turn 65 years old. And usually they're a little bit in bed. Oh, I didn't mean it. I was like, no, 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 no offense taken. I just want you to recognize that you need to be a little bit more informed about the diversity within um, the group who we call elderly. And that 65 age really comes out of antiquated old social policy. And so, you know, the population has moved on, but the um, mindset has not. And often Mm -hmm. we'll use that as a really good example of how our biases, however well-intended we are, we don't know that they're there. And that's a perfect example of how our biases get in our way. Mm -hmm. So, Yeah, so it's a little bit going into implicit bias, right? Being unconscious of your bias. Right, exactly. Right. Right. So I'm going to move on to... Dr. Billis, and I'm going to ask you to think about any other forms of uh, microaggression that you may have experienced, particularly related to race. Mm -hmm. Yes. Well, this isn't particularly related to race, it's related to religion. Okay. But several years ago, I was teaching an introductory philosophy course, which is what I teach a couple of sections of that every semester, because I only teach in the undergraduate college. And we were discussing ideas about the existence of God from Mm -hmm. a philosophical standpoint. Mm -hmm. So it's not a religion class, it's not questioning anybody's belief system, but it's just exploring what are the reasons why you might believe the way you believe, and so on. And I had a group of born-again Christians mm-hmm. in the class, and I had a group of Muslim students, some of whom wore hijabs, some of them didn't, but they were, you know, there was a pretty strong um, feeling. And at one point, one member of one of the groups stood up and said, I'm sorry, but I can't help it, but my religion teaches that you're going to hell. At which point, all of the students from the other group stood up and marched out. And I thought, oh, teachable moment, you know, because obviously they were going to have to come back mm-hmm. next period, you know, next right. class. So I said, okay, now, now let's let's take this apart, freeze frame, mm-hmm. and how are we going to deal with this? Here we have a discussion that, that is in the context of certain learning objectives, and we need to think, how do we approach one another? Mm-hmm. What does it mean to say that to someone? And what does it mean to have academic discourse? Mm-hmm. And what does it mean that somebody feels free to say that to somebody else. Right. So yeah. that was a really interesting day. 
Wow, that is very interesting. That would, yeah. There were a lot of lessons for a lot of people in that day. One of the things that, that invariably will happen when we're having a conversation about working cross-culturally or working with families that are different than ours, it's usually the language that we're talking about, invariably a student will say, well, you people, <gasps> or they always. Yes. And, and the they means to a certain uh, racial group or, mm-hmm. or usually ethnic group or... or um, and so to, to stop in the process right at that point and, and you know, mm-hmm. recognize, mm-hmm. oh, teachable moment, I, I won't be able to come back to this next time because they won't even remember having said that right. and would deny it. It's just that much of, of and, and really would genuinely not recall saying something that biased. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's subtle, right? right? Yeah. But even though it's subtle, the group that you're referring to usually hear it crystal clear, mm-hmm. Right. So my next question is, many people feel overwhelmed in the face of current events. They feel powerless. In March, there was a policy or executive order that was passed by our current president that for free speech, right, on the heels of the Virginia incident where that young lady was uh, mowed down. And, um, you know, so how do we balance the issue of free speech and sensitivity or hate crimes? You know, sensitivity to diversity, but also balancing hate crimes and rhetoric when they show up on campus. Any ideas? Hmm. Well, I know that as a woman of color and a well-educated academic, I have a bit of a schizophrenic reaction because there's a part of me that's like, okay, lock the gates hmm. and arm yourself. <laughs> You know, and then there's another side of me that feels that discourse is important, and it, as difficult as it is for us to deal with that position that we would define as air quotes unacceptable needs to be heard. I'm I feel like I, as a social worker, I need to know that that's how people are feeling that that's that that feeling is out there so that I don't immediately. Um, uh, what am I looking for? Sort of shut um, it down. Yes, yeah, so shut it down. First of all, so I don't shut it down, but I need to know what it is in service of my clients who might be targeted with that kind of an experience. Because sometimes it's so outrageous. Like if someone were to to, to talk about that that incident in Charlottesville, short of having that person be mowed down or have it be not that, not not such a grand scale, but instead of on a scale of 10, on a scale of five or seven, that might not even have made the news depending on what else was going on. Someone starts telling you the story and says they were shouting, Jews shall not replace us. And in the back of your head, as a level-headed American who believes in freedom, it's like, there's no way that they were literally... I mean, I understand you were upset, you know, in your head. I understand you were upset that they were marked, but there's no way that they would actually be yelling that. Do you know what I'm saying? And I, I, I am sure that they did not expect to be on television yelling that. They were planning to yell it, but they didn't expect to get that level of coverage. They didn't expect, I think. Um, so there's there's the need to, to hear that. So I think that government and the public entities have a responsibility to protect those individuals' right to express their feelings and their, their, to articulate and I want to hear it. But when we're talking about an institution, public or private, that has a physical space where people are in that space 
for an agenda other than racial, ethnic, diversity-related confrontation that the institution needs to be protected and that the institution needs to protect. So personally, I don't think that that kind of hate speech has any place on a college campus. College campuses have perimeters. Let them go out. and If you have something to say to those of us who participate in this institution of higher learning, speak to us from the outside. Because what we think, what you're saying doesn't have any place here because it is damaging. It could incite violence and it is damaging. It's beyond hurtful. It is damaging. I think it's an intended consequence of undermining the value that we're placing on diversity. And from where I sit, I think I'm right, and I think diversity has value, and diversity generates strength. So I don't know what the rules would be for that kind of an engagement, but I think that forcing it to be silent or invisible further endangers those of us who are targeted by it. I couldn't agree with you more. And as a white woman, personally, I've been shielded all my life. You know, I'm tremendously privileged that I've never experienced any kind of discrimination. Mm -hmm. And it shocks me that people of color are not more angry than they are because because of the history of racism in America, and, and it's ongoing. Mm-hmm. It just stuns me that people are not blowing stuff up all the time. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's totally oversimplifying, but mm-hmm. but it, it, it's just the more I learn about it, the more enraged I become, mm-hmm. you know, and I'm not even a target of it. I, so I, I couldn't agree with you more. It's our duty as educators to protect our students and to make them constantly aware of what's going on on the campus and off the campus. So how do you, and I don't know if you had a chance, I don't want to put you on the spot, but how is this brought into the classroom when an incident occurs on campus or in field placement? Do we totally ignore it and not address it? Do we bring it in? What what are your suggestions? What are your thoughts? Um, I can speak to to field and, and on our campus, the graduate program and the undergraduate program are really quite separate. And so when this went on, we talked about it a lot in the graduate courses and in the class meetings and from a variety of different perspectives, policy, you know, the the impact of social environment, and then clearly the clinical courses. I think that when it's field and when I know who the players are, which is usually most of the time as it's happening, I usually will have to intervene and get involved. And for me, part of that process is to speak with the players first individually and then as a team specifically about this is a teachable moment. It's a teachable moment for all of us. Um, and it's a teachable moment potentially for a lot of our peers. And I would very much like to use it in that way. I would need your permission to do that. I will not name the agency. I will not name the preceptor. I will not name the student. But you will likely be sitting in the session where I'm going to bring it up. Um, I am not going to out you. And you're welcome to out yourself. I don't think that that's necessary for the teachable moment to be effective. And usually I get agreement and sometimes I don't get agreement. I've had a student say, no, I don't want to do that because I've told enough students already that everybody will know that it's me and I have to respect that. Um, But for the most part, the response is that they can, you know, nobody's gleeful about it, but they could understand how it's a useful opportunity for peer teaching. And and interestingly, the student who said that she did not want to talk about it 
and I respected that, and I have all of the all of the field students sort of captive once a month. Well, when we all came together, it was the module where they're doing the diversity course, and somebody mentioned how they had taken some of the content from their diversity course to the agency, and how the representatives of the agency were very uncomfortable with the content. And she says, I wanted to learn, I wanted to hear, I brought it as a question. Okay, so how do you guys you know, handle this? How do you talk about the cultural difference with your clients? Because what I'm getting in practice is that this is something that we should do for the integrity of the process. And I don't really know how to say, well, as a white girl, I don't know that. You know, she goes, I want them to have the right language. How do you handle it? And people got really uncomfortable and nobody talked about it. And the student who'd been part of the incident actually shared, and then shared her her um, experience and what the conversation had been like with her preceptor and her level of discomfort and blah, 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 like that. So I, I just think, think that I have really broad parameters. If it's not immoral and it's not illegal, it's all fair game in terms of teaching. <laughs> right. So. And I will also say social worker lends itself right. to social justice. And so right. I could see how it's happening. I'm going to turn to you, Nancy. Is it easy to bring these things into the classroom? Absolutely. Because for two reasons. One is that all the students have to take one philosophy class. And the first month of that required introduction to philosophy, the focus is on critical thinking. And so when something comes up, we'll look at that. Now, what is being said here? What's the argument being put forward? Where are the limitations to the argument? And, and we go through this kind of thing. So we really do a very a deep read or a slow read of a text, but the text could be an incident. Right. Okay? So for sure, in that way, we're always interrogating what is being meant, what is being said, and the difference between those two things. Secondly, because we are Mercy College, at least in name, our emphasis in philosophy is often on social justice. And so we look at various ethical theories. We look at the relationship between the individual and the state, mm -hmm. for example. And we, mm -hmm. we look at that a lot. And we look very carefully at the idea of the difference between what's immoral and what's illegal. Um, so, yes, I mean, it's easy. It's very easy for me. And also because the nature of philosophy is that there really isn't any right answer, which drives the students crazy sometimes, you know, especially the nursing They're students. very concrete. They're very concrete. <laughs> and so they'll say, just tell me the answer. I'm like, I wish I could. <laughs> but there isn't one. There's, you know, 47 million of them. So everyone's encouraged to give their opinion. And always with that background idea of respect and also critical thinking, that you're, that you're thinking about what you're saying critically as well as what somebody with an opposing viewpoint might be thinking or saying. The idea is that there is no right answer, and so we have to examine all the answers, and then everybody chooses what makes sense to them. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't guarantee that there's anything right or just mm -hmm. about what their answer ends up being. Right? right. But it's very interesting compared to your experience, because my students are at a very different developmental level. Uh, so many of them will say, oh, I don't want to talk about race right? because I don't want to offend anybody. So several times we've tried to offer an upper-level course in philosophy of race. The last three or four times we've tried to offer it, nobody would sign up for it mm. because it's too racially charged. Mm -hmm. it's, too, it's too emotionally charged. Right. And people don't want to get into those, those kind of discussions. Right. And my attitude is, of course you have to have those discussions. It's, it's our duty right. as educators to bring that front and center. Whatever's happening, you have to talk about it, you have to investigate it, you have to interrogate it, and you have to, to really dig down into what's meant behind what's said. Well, that's interesting that you say that because that is very common, you know, worldwide, right? Talking about race makes people uncomfortable. Right. It makes black people uncomfortable, it makes white people uncomfortable, and everyone else uncomfortable. 
But yet we are interacting with each other, less meaningful than we hope. But so how do we get the conversation started? I mean, you know, in our formal and informal curriculum. So I will say, I'm sorry if it makes you uncomfortable. And if it really makes you uncomfortable, you can step out. If it's going to be something that's traumatizing you, you can step out. Absolutely. But it's okay to be uncomfortable. There's nothing wrong with being a little bit uncomfortable. You're going to survive. And this is so important because otherwise our our classes are a microcosm of the society, right? right? So otherwise we're just going to keep going in this bifurcation that's happening in the U.S. and, and in the world at large. Mm-hmm. So I think it's desperately important for us to let students be uncomfortable. I mean, I've learned over time I really do need to do a lot of debriefing because mm-hmm. I didn't used to do that. Mm-hmm. I would just let them go out and they would keep simmering. And now I make sure that I try to say, okay, now we're coming to the end of this and let's, right. you know. Right. What would you say to other faculty who themselves may be uncomfortable addressing issues of race and racism or social justice? We've been in, in a reality, which I think is is very brittle now, where it's okay to sidestep issues of race mm. and where we institutions have silently colluded Definitely. Um, and we have easily gone along. First of all, I, I see two groups. Those of us who are people of color and those folks who I see as white allies, and Nancy, for example, and, and what I mean by a white ally is someone who's completely aware or becoming completely aware of their white privilege and really looking for ways to not deny the white privilege, but to use the white privilege to move forward the understanding of the power of diversity, because diversity includes them. It doesn't exclude them. Like students who think diversity means everybody else but white people is missing the boat a little bit. So I think that um, that we have made it okay. So you get an institution like ours where you have a handful of, of a faculty of color, which is growing, most of whom are junior, but you still, you get a handful of faculty of color and you get a handful of white allies, some of whom are new and some of whom have been there forever. And then there's everybody else. And so our groups combined might be 20% of the professionals, Mm -hmm. the providers of the service, which is education. Mm -hmm. And then the other 80%, I I don't know well enough to know how many of, of them are in the, I don't know and I don't care that I don't know. And how many of them are, I don't know. And it might show a weakness in me that I don't know. I wouldn't know how to know. I wouldn't know how to get, I'd like to be over there in the white ally group, but I don't know how to get over there. Right. And so I think it's important for us to begin. The only way out is through. Mm -hmm. The only way um, out of this dilemma is to go through the process. And to me, the process is to have the conversation about inclusion. I mean, it's easier to even talk about inclusion than exclusion, about marginalization, what it means um, and how it manifests, et cetera. And, you know, I'm not a, a fan of many institutions, including ours, I must say, but I think that it's to the faculty's credit as we struggle with this reality, for example, that we've placed the whole issue of diversity and inclusion on the agenda. Now, what we do with that is the challenge, but at least we're in the conversation, you know, at least we're on the, the, the agenda. And so I think that we've been taking baby steps and that we're in the spirit of inclusion, have included just about everything, but at least it's, it's, it's an effort to make people comfortable first. Right. You know, it's kind of like going up the side of a mountain. 
you go to a certain level where the oxygen level changes. And if you really want to go higher, you need to stop there and give your lungs and your body an opportunity. Usually if you've done any, I haven't, I just hear the stories. You give your, <laughs> you give your, your body a good you know, 15, 20 minutes to adjust and then people move up and people who don't do that end up getting to the next level and then being oxygen deprived and not being able to go forward. So right. I, I just think that that's a really useful analogy. Yeah. Sounds really great. Mm-hmm. It gave me some things to think about. Um, so we talk about how a faculty might be uncomfortable bringing it into the classroom because students may react in various ways. But I'm also very interested in the institutional collusion, as you mentioned, with a lack of diversity. Um, And I say that because I was looking at some statistics the other day, and it said of higher ed institutions, full-time faculty, 76% is white, I think 41 male, 35 female, Um, and then 24% people of color with blacks, male, 3%, black female, 3%, Latino, male, And it goes down the line, Indian as well as Native American and mixed races. Altogether, Mm -hmm. they're about 24%. Mm. And I'm thinking, you know, in order to be a full-time faculty, you have to have a PhD. And the road to getting a PhD has so many hurdles. There's so much to navigate. And then you get to that point, and if you don't see or feel comfortable and welcomed, um, what happens even when you start, you leave and do something else. I've had so many colleagues say, I'm not doing academia. First of all, it doesn't pay enough. There is that. (laughs) That's one issue. (laughs) And then I have to jump through all these hoops. So I was recently on a search committee, and I asked the, the members of the search committee, how do you help a person of color feel comfortable in the department? How do you recruit them, first of all, and how do you make them feel comfortable so that all the energy you expend in getting them here they will stay. And, you know, people went silent. They they didn't respond. They didn't, they started going into, well, there's a criteria for recruitment and they have to have a PhD. And I'm like, yeah, we wouldn't consider someone without a PhD. But, you know, so they have the PhD and they've met the criteria. Now, what is it that we have to offer people like that, people of color, that would make them want to come to us and be a part of this institution. And we don't think beyond that, right? Yeah, Yeah. we don't know how to do that. Yeah, we don't do it well. And I think what USJ does is we require almost, I don't don't know, I'm not in HR, so I don't know if that's accurate, but I think we almost require each committee to have a person of color on the committee. Strongly recommended. But here's the thing, if you're the only person of color in that committee, Mm How strong is your voice? How comfortable do you feel putting your voice on the table? And every time you put your voice on the table, you're expending chips, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. especially if you're saying something that some people don't want to hear. People are like not comfortable around you. And and I I just noticed, I remember one of the students talking about picking their battles. And that really is, that really is my approach. And I don't know, to be honest with you, how much of it is in our upbringing i just know that my dad raised a family you know especially the three girls to be successful and so to be successful meant yeah people are going to mess with you and they may even knock you down you stand up you dust yourself off and you keep going because it's not about them it's about what it is you want to accomplish Mm -hmm. and 
I've gotten to the point sometimes in those situations where the more uncomfortable I'm making people, the more effective I feel I'm being. When you get to the level where you have, this is a terribly elitist thing to say, but when you get to the level where you've gone through all those battles to get a PhD as a person who is marginalized, so it's as a, a person of color, um, as a woman, especially in a primarily uh, male field, which I would say you're in. I mean, I think that your experience, especially philosophy. Yeah, yeah. that's what I'm saying. Seventeen <laughs> percent. Yeah, and so the, you're of saying the philosophy you, faculty in the United States are women. Yeah, wow. so you just if you are feeling like I really don't know what um, being marginalized is, go to one of your national conferences. It'll <laughs> it'll bring it all right back because that's how I feel when we go to our national yeah. conferences. That's, that's a good point. I don't yeah. go to those anymore because they're just horrible. But yeah, and that's one of the ways in which they're horrible. Yeah, yeah. and so I I just think. See, perfect example. You've chosen not to pick that as a battle. And I'm sure I'm sure that you have colleagues who are among the 17% who are like, this is not acceptable, and I'm going to go to those conferences, I'm going to present at those conferences, I'm going to be on those boards, because they're going to change. And that's what it takes. And that's what I try to teach my social work students. Not all of you have that in you, but if you do have it in you, don't kill it. Right, yeah. You know, it's really yeah. important. So that came up with the students, as you mentioned. One of them said when she makes her point, she's, she's actually labeled the angry black woman. Mm -hmm. And so what I'm hearing you say is that your father helped you navigate white space and mm -hmm. spaces that were unwelcoming or where you would be a minority when you show up. And it sounds like that's something we have to do with children of color, right? Mm -hmm. Help them navigate that space and feel comfortable enough that when you walk into a room, you may be the only person of color, right? And everybody might turn around and look at you. I had a colleague I, w I was in a PhD program with, and then he went off to teach much earlier. He finished earlier. And he walked into a meeting one day for faculty, and everyone turned around and thought he was a student and said, uh, this is a faculty meeting. This, you know, it's not really for you. And he had to pull it together and said, I am a faculty and find a seat. And so, you know, even as a PhD and a faculty, because he wasn't recognized as a faculty, he was relatively new in the institution. And this is New York, <laughs> where you would think there's more diversity. Um, I think that's a wonderful, that's to me, that's a wonderful um what he taught all those people in that room, you can't teach at a conference. <laughs> and so that's what I think is really important. I know it's hard being a person of color in academia, but walking around saying, I'm a woman of color who went to Brandeis and BU, I have two masters and a PhD, there's a lot of status and power in that. And I can be self-effacing and pretend there isn't, or I can choose to use it strategically. I would give money for that experience <laughs> because I, I would. That, that is such a hugely teachable, it was a huge lesson, you know, period. Close the chapter. Let's move on. Everyone's completely uncomfortable except for him. That's really what it should be like. Do you know what I'm saying? And so it's hard to, to wake up every morning and, and, recognize that you might have those moments, but they're priceless in terms of the, you know, the folks in that room won't make that mistake again. <laughs> Hope not. Especially the person who spoke. <laughs> right. right. Yeah. You know, yeah. the other people will be like, oh, no, and that'll teach me to just zip the lip. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> but it's it's all of the assumptions. So I, I, yeah. I think it's, it is not easy. I think that racism is, to be honest, a white people's problem for which people of color pay the price. Absolutely. 
And there's, there's no other way around that. And if you're going to be in the struggle, you just need to decide you're going to be in the struggle. Part of white privilege is that you can choose not to be in the struggle. And we don't, we don't get that choice. You know, so it's, it's, right. I think it's, it's hard to explain to people the notion of white privilege. I'm so excited that we're struggling with that now as a society. I, like, I hear it everywhere. And I, I just think that's a happy problem that people are struggling with that because forever they haven't. Right, right. Thanks for sharing that. So given that racism exists in the larger society and higher education is not, um, you know, removed from that, it's not immune, um, what are some suggestions you have for faculty, administrators in addressing issues of racism, both from a preventative measure as well as um, after an incident occurs? In terms of prevention, I would say that you should look for opportunities in your syllabus and in your classroom, in your textbooks, to bring up ideas about racism. You might say, well, how am I going to do that as a biologist? Well, there's this whole STEAM thing, right? Girls in STEAM. What mm-hmm. about people of color in STEAM? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, Why not look mm-hmm. for opportunities where you can make people, not make people uncomfortable, but make people aware mm-hmm. that, the, that this problem is here and it's real and it's huge. Mm-hmm. So that's one thing I would say. In terms of incidents, I would say never back away. Never back away. Because what are you doing as an educator if you're not making people aware? Right. Thank you. Yeah, I agree completely. So what are some of the joys and challenges you faced in your work as it relates to ethnicity, gender, or race? As part of our introductory philosophy course, we look at the issue of personal identity, how you become who you are, the internal and external forces that are at work. And so I have my students each fill out a sort of a questionnaire about how they identify. And if they're comfortable, which varies from class to class, discussing it with each other, because everybody has an identity. And it's so fascinating to me, and this is one of the joys, that we have such a large demographic of first-generation college students at USJ. That's so exciting. And you know, yes, the flip side is they don't know how to write. And also they don't get support from their families necessarily around the time commitment to their studies. But it's so exciting to see the promise of what America can be is coming through in our students. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's more embedded in my classroom structure. In terms of challenges, I won't let students off. I'll say, wait a minute, what did you mean when you said that? And say, oh, no, I didn't mean anything. Well, kind of you did, because you said it. So let's just go there. And I try to do it in a non-threatening way. Mm-hmm. And sometimes students, they'll back away before I'll back away. You know, something will be happening with a couple of the people of color in my room. And I'll say, okay, hold on, let's, let's see what's going on here. Mm-hmm. And they don't want to bring it up because they don't want it to be a thing. Mm-hmm. You know? But I want it to be a thing, because it's a thing, you know? <laughs> so... Great. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah, but one of my questions is, how do we make it being a thing, a good thing, like mm-hmm. an attractive a good thing, thing right? you yeah. know? And so um, for me, we were training professionals. So training and working with students who have had their entire world be pretty much 
monoracial, mm-hmm. all white students or even African-American students or Latino students who they may have gone to school with everybody in the schools are increasingly reflective of the communities. I right. think they're supposed to be, but not always are. And so their whole experience is an experience, a black experience or a Latino experience. And they come out into the real world and we're a little bit more of the real world, an academic situation. And they begin to recognize that it is possible their ability to do work cross-culturally, that other people have thought about that. Sometimes that's a huge aha for students. And even just watching students struggle with that versus move away from it is a win, you know? And Mm -hmm. so for us, I think sometimes it's a matter of redefining a win. And sometimes a win means staying in an uncomfortable situation so that it's a learning experience for everyone. And, you know, life is not, and classes are not, fairy tales where you just everything, you know, it comes out really nice and you fade to black, you know, things keep going. And so I think what you said earlier about trying to bring some closure and a little bit of processing is important so that students don't feel either dismembered or attacked, or sometimes a student who hasn't said anything takes this stuff in and really internalizes, oh my God, I'm, I'm a useless human being because I didn't know that or I didn't think that. And so they walk away with that level of self-doubt and self-deprecation. We don't want to cause that in anyone. Right. And so that's part of our challenge. And so to me, it's rewarding when I see students willing to engage in the struggle, willing to be in the struggle, and likewise, colleagues who are willing to be in the struggle and willing to stay in the struggle, who are willing to ask, how do we attract what should we be doing to attract faculty of color, you know, mm-hmm. versus the other end of the spectrum who don't know and don't care? And, right. And I think the attitude of, what you going to say? No, no, go ahead. The attitude, um, I can't remember who was it came up with this term, but the attitude of appreciative inquiry. Yeah. So that you model for the students, I'm not attacking you. Nobody's being attacked here. Nobody's, it's not a battleground. It's not a fairy tale, but it's mm-hmm. also not a battleground. Right. So let's, let's, let's see. How is it you got to that position? Mm-hmm. Where was it in your background that that position started to come up and then be solidified? And really just in a very non-judgmental way to sort of say, oh, that's really interesting. Because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. otherwise will, they'll always back away from it because it's too conflict-laden. Mm-hmm. Right. So we're winding down, and I had a question, but something you said sparked an idea. Oftentimes when we think of diversity, we think of it as white people becoming familiar and comfortable with working with people of color. Do you ever get from students or colleagues apprehension or anxiety around people of color or students of color working with white people? Does that ever happen? Whether a white person is a client or the person getting the service, is that something that ever comes up for you? It, it does. It, it has come up. And it actually tends to surprise some of the students of color because they know that everything that they read is all about white people for the most part. And then there's the footnotes about people. So they're used to that. And so it's like they know the theories and they know the techniques and they know the strategies and they feel that they've always had to modify them or figure out how do they work with this particular population. And because they're a person of color and because sometimes that brings with it a linguistic ability, then they always end up working with those populations. And I have had preceptors who have forethought, some of them need to be pushed a little bit, and actually students who recognize, wait, this you can't ghettoize my experience. I need to have 
experience with everyone. And so then they have to confront the fact that they don't know either. I think that that's an incredibly empowering moment. And it's, it's especially what I call mega empowering for the dialogue, because it's important to recognize that this is a learning journey for everyone. It's, it is very uncomfortable for everyone. And that's the thing is that it's uncomfortable for everyone. Sometimes these conversations are the only time that people of color feel they have some power in academia. And so it's hard for them to listen and it's hard for them not to be aggressive. They have all this pent up frustration from having all of this sort of experience in an academic setting or out in the world or both where they've been marginalized and ignored and misinterpreted and someone speaks for them and all of those kinds of things happen. And now we're at a place where they're the, the expert and they don't know what to do with that power. That's new power. And sometimes the way that they use the power is empowering for the moment. Like they get to tell somebody about themselves or something like that. Do you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And so I, I think it's important for for students to learn that. And part of that lesson is to be in that situation mm-hmm. where the person that, and I've had students where clients have said, I don't want the black mm-hmm. girl as my therapist. Mm-hmm. And so usually that becomes a big part of the discourse or the interaction mm-hmm. with the person, you know, with whom they're they're dealing, the person who does the assignment or whoever it was that they have gone to. Mm-hmm. So it, it, it gets really, it's a very complicated terrain. Yeah. And there are no paths that have already been carved. And I think this is, I mean, kudos to you and those who are working with you, because this is an important part mm-hmm. of that. I think sometimes it's important to have conversations that, to be honest, at first glance, feel like they're not going anywhere. Right. But they're very useful because they create all kinds of permission for dialogue. Mm-hmm. And I think that's how this podcast can be really powerful and helpful. Because a lot of yeah. times our colleagues don't want to, they'll project. They'll say, I don't really, I try not to bring race up. I'm teaching math or I'm trying to not bring race up. I'm teaching English, which is a huge opportunity to do that. But I'm teaching literature or whatever. And so I, I don't really want to talk about it because it makes the students uncomfortable. Really, they're the ones that are uncomfortable. Right. They wouldn't know what to do with that right. at all. And right. I think there are ways for um, institutions, you know, administrations see that we need to have more administrators of color. We need to have more cross germination you know mm-hmm. we we have mm-hmm. a concentration of people of color over in social work and we have a, a colleague who just has just joined us in another department that is not known for its inclusivity and so i said to her half kind of kidding oh you're so lucky they put your over your office over here in the ghetto because at least you'll have colleagues who will know what you're experiencing when you come out of faculty meetings because we've all been there and so she kind of laughed it was this is not her first rodeo in academia she kind of laughed and she she said you know what you're right it is it is comforting to be able to see other faces of color, even if I'm just walking down the hall to go to the stairway or whatever. And so I think it's important to have, just to have more diversity and figure Mm. out creative ways of of creating more diversity, including for students. Right. Students and faculty. Yeah, Yeah. certainly us, yeah. That's another episode that we're going to be doing. (laughs) And I want you both to come back. But my last question is sort of a twofold. It's what are some of the hopes and fears for the future with regards to the racial and ethnic climate of this country? We are living in a very unique time. And if you had one message for the world about this issue, what would you say? To be honest with you, I think that the one message is easier than the first question. (laughs) Because to me, the one message is if you lead with humility and respect, you can get through any conversation, any interaction. And so really try to go 
forth in your life and in your interactions with humility and respect. That you, it doesn't matter what they look like. It doesn't matter how they present. You are going to respect this individual. And there might be something that you could learn or should know about their experience before you judge them. And we lead with judgment. That's an American thing, I think. I don't know if it's only an American thing, but it's so hugely an American thing that we lead with judgment. And so I'm going to let my colleague share her, her whatever she thinks is easier so I can think a little bit about right. how I see the future. Because it, I, I don't want to be a negative Nelly at the end. So. <laughs> well... Regarding my hopes and fears, my hopes are that we'll continue to push as faculty in our own little corner of the world, that we'll continue to push for greater diversity amongst the faculty and for the students, obviously, Mm -hmm. because there's a knock-on effect. My fears are that because our classrooms are microcosm of society, it's going to be harder work because the, you know, the country is just a mess. And um, in terms of my one thing to share with the world, I would say that every waking moment is an opportunity to do something positive or negative. So I think it's our responsibility, our duty to choose the positive, because we can't hope for anything to change unless we're going to be part of that. All right. Thank you. I really um, believe that democracy is resilient. I really do. So I think we'll survive. I don't know what it's going to look like on the other side, but I think it will reflect the freedoms and the ideals that we hold high. Great. I hope you're right. (laughs) (laughs) Me too. (laughs) She's optimistic. Thank you so much, both of you, for participating. This was wonderful, and I do hope we can do it again. Thank Thank you you for the opportunity. Great. In today's episode, our guests discussed experiences in the classroom on ageism, religious bias, and racial incidents. They gave us some really important lessons. They talk about the formal and informal curriculum, the need to be able to navigate and balance difficult discourse in the classroom and hateful rhetoric, the need to look for opportunities to bring up issues of racism, And last but not least, they discussed how important it is to debrief difficult issues before letting the students out of the classroom. Some statements that the guest speakers made that resonated for me are, one, never back away from difficult discussions. Two, racism is white people's problem and people of color pay the price for it. Three, White privilege is having the choice to be in the struggle or not. Four, if you lead with humility and respect, you can get through any conversation and any interaction. And five, we will continue to push for diversity in our own corner. Our next episode is going to be with Raina White, Director of Diversity and Inclusion and Title IX Coordinator at the University of St. Joseph. See you next time on Inside Out, Outside In. Thank you. You have been listening to the Inside Out, Outside In podcast. Our executive producer is Gabe Herman. Our production assistant is Sneha Jayaraj. Original music for this podcast was composed by June Aino. 
The Inside Out, Outside In podcast is made possible in part by a grant from the Hartford Consortium for Higher Education. The views, information, or opinions expressed during this podcast are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of any college, university, or the Hartford Consortium of Higher Education. Thank you for listening.